Hello there. Thank you for listening to The Tully Show. As always, Mark McGrath is back, and June of 1981 was a banner month for new music releases, as you are about to see. While I have you here, real quick, a quick reminder, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. We're having all kinds of fun over there. We talk about silly news. We watch bad and occasionally kind of good movies together. We talk about music. We live. We laugh. We love Come join the fun. Hope to see you there. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape on location in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California from an above ground basement boasting a fully obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and three-time champion of Rock and Roll Jeopardy. Hello and welcome back once again, our dear friend, Mark McGrath. Hey, Tully, can you you say fully obstructed view? Yeah. Of, is there any view at all if you stand on a ladder? like or? Well, okay. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be saying because I've never had anything but a fully obstructed view of the Hollywood sign doing any of these shows because I've always been inside a studio that right. had no windows but i did know that if i walked right outside and looked around the bend i could see it from the window in both serious buildings correct yes yes uh, uh maybe all three yes i will show you on your way out where you can see it from my front patio so I don't know if I'm supposed to say partially obstructed because obviously down here, all we it's have a full. view of is a tambourine allegedly signed by Marcy. And what the what's the basketball sort of? My uh, wife, the love of my life, bid successfully in an auction for a basketball signed by Russell Westbrook. That's Gosh, what she she went through the whole thing. And I decided, like that's you what she more now because of that. That is so fantastic. It's <laughs> a beautiful display case too. Yeah, thank you. I, Russell Westbrook is her basketball spirit animal. Listen, man, Tony tri Parker triple and then, double every night. Yeah. plays hard. I, I'm a Russell Westbrook fan for sure. Exactly. Ch chasing stats notwithstanding. Yeah, exactly. You don't need a ring. You just need some stats. So. <laughs> Uh, so you, we are back here to talk about new music releases from somehow it is already June of 2021. And oh, wait, 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 before we talk about the new music from June of 1981, you and I were both tagged on a tweet that I wanted to discuss with you. We've sort of touched on this before, but yeah. one claw shrimp on Twitter um, retweeted something from someone by the name of Drew Gooden. And Drew Gooden said, this is what I picture in my head whenever radio stations say they have the best mix of the 80s, 90s, and today. And the drawing has the 80s and the 90s, and then today is just 2000 to <laughs> right. the present. He said, this Drew Gooden person says, it's been today for 21 years. Yes. You can't keep getting away with this. <laughs> That is so smart and so insightful because yeah. you know why? The record industry ended in 2000, 2001. Right. Now, obviously, it didn't stop. It kept going. But this is when Napster came in and streaming came in. And then what happened was the label stopped investing in A&R, developing bands. Mm -hmm. Yes, the Maroon 5s got through and a Fallout Boy, and there was a couple more scenes, emo and whatnot. Yeah. But 
the volume of gigantic hits coming out of the 90s, like from Everclear, Smash Mouth, Mariah Carey. A Sugar uh, Ray, for example. A Sugar Ray, if you will, not to throw myself <laughs> in the mix, but uh, if you, you're going to shoehorn me in there, so am I. But so it's interesting. It's kind of the day the industry died. Yeah. You know, Don McLean wrote about the day the music died. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the year the music died, the industry died. And so I always tell people, what do you call 2000 to 2010? What's that called? The aughts? I mean, what's that? Seriously, what is that decade called? Right. We, we were wondering about that for a while. I feel like we have settled on the O's. The O's? Okay, no one's I, told me. No, I, I, I agree I, with We you. play this game all day long about, I'm, a, I'm on a decade radio show. I'm all about decades and when does it end? When does it start? I don't know. What do you call the the teens? The twi- yeah. What do you call the, I don't, What are you calling the two? Uh, uh, That's funny. The teens ended without anyone ever calling them the teens. The teens, because so they like, were. The, if you say the teens, I, I, my first thought remains the nineteen teens. Absolutely. And if you say, oh, you know that teen scene, you're like, what are you talking about? There's just so. I think Drew has such a wonderful insight because we stopped. There, you know, I can tell you exactly when the '70s started and ending. We're talking about the '80s right now. It's a. It's just really an incredible. Uh, insight into what how the 80s started and what it would become mm-hmm. so it kind of just ended in 2000 and i think when he says music of today that's so funny because yeah. yeah there's some hits of today but there's no more like oh yeah i remember that scene or i've got those memories of that of that summer of 2008 well you and i feel that way i'm sure there's people of a certain age who feel like there was a very specific thing going on in 2000 whether or not they associate it with this band was all on a you know a Lollapalooza type festival together or they were all from the same city i guess you're right and, and also there's different mechanisms and uh, vehicles the way people receive their music so i guess i'm just referring to the conventional way yeah and that's all i know and that's what my business was and that's how my music's been delivered to me for my whole life it still is right. i'm the last guy to find something on a stream you know and uh, my kids actually hit me to anything new today uh so i think people of a certain age group i.e myself maybe drew kind of feel like when when's was the '90s the last decade? I know. That, so this Drew Gooden guy, by the way, wasn't there a, a basketball player, there was a, a baseball player, Drew Gooden? Well, there was a Dwight Gooden who played oh, baseball. Forgive me. Oh, there was a Drew Gooden who was a good uh, outside shooter. Yeah, right. To play basketball. Right. That's right. That's right. This guy's a YouTuber. Yeah, but he's got some followers, right? This guy's a real deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got seven hundred thousand followers on Twitter. The question, I guess, is when will today end? It has to eventually, right? That's, that's that's right. I think when you get real literal, like guys like us doing music, yeah. you can't just say today. And when will he? When will these people stop getting away with it? I totally agree with Drew. We yeah. might be the my small minority in breaking down the semantics of that. Yeah, you know, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Well, maybe it doesn't have to end because we're also the last generation that's going to listen to the dumb radio. The radio. So point. it'll just be Jack FM for people who don't know. You know, it's just your. It's your, Alice. It's Jack. Whatever city you're in. It's your dad's iPod on shuffle that's just sort of the last gasp of all of this is you'll have uh the the pop oriented pinata mix of Mm -hmm. everything from 1979 until whatever still gets through the the radar to old people today and you'll maybe have an equivalent of that for rock or metal-ish kind of stuff and then you'll have probably that for hip-hop and a contemporary hip-hop and then you'll have like five like hispanic stations yeah exactly Exactly, because because hip hop, you know, I mean, because like the '90s were the era when also all the genres got broken down. And you and I have talked about this before. Uh, the major pop stations in each market would be coming up next: Eminem, 
Blink-182, Mariah Carey, and Naughty by Nature. Yeah. And so it Casey was- Casey Kasem. I, I just want a compilation of Casey Kasem announcing <laughs> those. <laughs> but it was a Lollapalooza Baby era. got back. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, I heard him saying that, by the way, many times. <laughs> yeah. But no, no greater joy in my life was hearing him say, here's a beach, here's a band out of Newport Beach, California. Terrific. And hearing Casey Kasem, we, we used to enter, we used to start our shows with that. The Casey Kasem intro mm -hmm. to a Sugar Ray show, because it was such a just monumental, mind-blowing thing to hear him say it on the yeah, countdown that's what makes you official yeah absolutely the little, yeah. little milestones like that um but the 90s were that Lollapalooza age where we just threw away our genre so we just were okay we, we just listen to everything now and that's kind of what these jack fms are doing they're throwing if you had a big hit i don't care if it was hip-hop r&b jagged edge you know uh whatever it was we're listening to it you have a hit come on board you know that's kind of the uh mindset of today's programming on the radio at least how long do you think terrestrial radio is going to last well, it'll never go away. Because it's free. Yeah. I think the the better question is, would there ever come a time that it would not make sense for it to be standard in cars? That's hard for me to imagine. Because even now, I don't know if my phone, if I if I dropped it, you know, if I if I mistakenly poured a bottle of champagne on top of it, not realizing I didn't have the phone that was up to that challenge. I don't know. My wife listens to... NPR. I don't know why she does that to herself, but she does it. No, but and also you listen to local news every now and then, don't you? Just for I don't know anything. You, you don't. Yeah. I don't. I still know more about the New York City mayor than I do about Los Angeles. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I don't that, know anything going well, on here. You know, because everything's about analytics now. You know, your your phone and your computer knows what you're interested in. You yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, I still listen to local news and I, I, I don't know. There's something about uh, the local news that gives a comfort to me. But again, I'm of the persnickety old name. I, yeah. I'm already set in my ways. Yeah. The radio's part of my my uh, my MO. I don't know if a kid who's 16 today even turns on the radio or, or, or he's not listening to what's coming out of his radio. He's listening to what's coming out of his phone. Right. Right. So there's no radio component other than it being the amplifier to his phone. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and you can't escape the reality that it becomes more of a, a class thing that radio is the only thing that's just completely free. You that's can right. still go, you know, Radio Shack finally mercifully went out of business, but you can still get your hands <laughs> on a radio somehow and you can go down to a work site or you can go out in your garage while you tool around with something and you can throw as long as you've got you've got it plugged into the wall, you've got right. free noise. Being yeah, it's a background distortion so you don't have to hear your own thoughts you know <laughs> exactly. what i mean which is always important sometimes right. and uh you're right as long as it's free it's amazing though when you listen to the radio how many commercials there are now because we kind of got away from, from it for a while yeah i mean talk about 25 minutes of commercials that's that's most people's drive time wherever they're going so mm -hmm. it's just it's crazy but still there still free still the radio in June of 1981 a uh, a little bit of music news you too made their first appearance on United States television on the tomorrow show with Tom Snyder is not where I would have guessed bands were breaking in, in a million years. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought that All now right. to Tom Snyder's credit, he would have Iggy pop on, mm -hmm. he would have John Lydon and PIL on. So no. he really okay. got a kick. I'm sorry for, for no, he really got a kick on the dichotomy of Tom Snyder, this old school cigarette in hand broadcaster, a bit disheveled as a reporter and having it like a young punk because he could outsmart them. Yeah. And they had a great sort of back and forth repartee, if you will. So he was really good, but not in a condescending way. 
he got a kick out of the new kids. You know what I'm saying? Hey, these kooky kids. But he would he would talk to them like human beings. And I and I think there's a great John Lydon from Public Image uh, YouTube. Um, one and Iggy Pop missing a tooth. Talking to Tom Snyder is one of the most epic uh, conversations you'll ever hear. So it surprises me a little bit. Because it's their first appearance. Yeah. Like what guy at the label said, well, they're probably because, you know, how much opportunity was there for you two at that time to get on American TV? Mm-hmm. Still a national national show. Yeah. And it's Tom Snyder. They so, were on Island Records the whole time, right? Yeah. The Chris Blackwell Islands rec- Island Records, who didn't have necessarily a huge presence in uh, in America at the time. Island had a few select, yeah. obviously reggae. Reggae label. Yeah. yeah but they, they were an independent label, let's, let's be honest, that was on their way to becoming a major with the... Uh, with you too. So I think uh, it's an, it makes no sense at all. And it makes a ton of sense at the same time. If you break it down. Yeah. So Tom Snyder to me is just the guy that Letterman had enough sway that he got Snyder put on after him when CBS rolled out the red carpet for Letterman. Anything you want. Nobody, nobody's really watching at 1130. So 1230, you do whatever the hell you want. Imagine telling Tom Snyder, by the way, you're going to 130. Yeah. <laughs> He was still there firing up the the color teeny, but they would not have had performances, right? So this is you two just being No, I interviewed? think they did have performances because oh, okay. I remember Iggy Pop comes over and sits on the on the couch and he's sweating and his tooth's missing and he's you know, he's uh-huh. out of breath. So I think there was performances of some sort. I haven't seen them because I've seen the YouTube interviews. I'd love to do a deep dive in that because I know he had some amazing bands on there. He truly did. And on June 6th of 1981, I'm just putting this together. That was the day that my wife was born. Hey. Yeah. Uh, and also. Two appearances early on the show. I Tully's know. wife. <laughs> I know. She's going to Yoko this thing for sure. <laughs> More on Yoko in a second. But the debut issue of Kerrang! magazine, which was the, I would have thought it had been around sooner than that. The UK metal magazine angus young on the cover of the debut issue of kerrang makes a little bit of sense because you know kerrang was very heavy metal yeah it, it, it was the heavy metal bible if you will certainly in uh in the uk and europe so you know you're starting to get acdc make some noise i think judas priest was coming out around that mm-hmm. time iron maiden starting to make some noise no doubt so i think there's a perfect uh storm of look what's coming on the horizon and then hey it needs a publication and yep. that is kerrang which is still it's an amazing Amazing magazine. Yeah. Still in operation today. Yeah, and kind of neat that the the old guard wasn't gonna roll out the welcome mat for heavy metal. No, no, no. Heavy, that took a long heavy time. Heavy metal was the bastard child of classic rock, despite the fact that they're virtually the same thing. Yeah, I mean, living after midnight is anything that, you know, the stones or you know, it, it's a three-chord rock and roll song. Yeah. It got a little more aggressive, obviously, and then the makeup came in. Kiss took the makeup off. Mm-hmm. And then Motley Crue said, we'll take that, please. And then <laughs> it was, you know what I mean? That, we'll take yeah. that makeup, no problem. So I, I think Kerrang! was in a perfect position to become what it is. Kerrang! was the first magazine our band was on the cover of. Oh, for little, real? A little fun, fun oh, fact. So, was it one of those fact? covers that had like 15 other graphics no. and you just had the biggest one? It was all you? It was, it was, it was us. They had the little pictures in the corner and sharing, stuff. And yeah. it, was, it was us, a Sugar Ray. And it was like new, new metal taking over from California. Like, I think they called it Adidas Rock because all of us were wearing Adidas sweatsuits. And I've said this before totally but like in sugar a 95 we were lumped in with the deftones the corns of the world yeah um 
because bands like Downset and Rage Against the Machine had made some noise over there. So rap rock was starting to really uh, take hold over there, uh, not to what it was going to become, you know, with Limp Biscuit coming around the corner. But they didn't know where to, where to put us in. You know, I was kind of rapping, I was singing, I didn't know what I was doing. But all I knew is we were finding a little bit of a lane, yeah. so we were driving in it for a while. And Kerrang, bless their, uh, bless their hearts, had us on the cover. That's terrific. Now, like, this is a dumb question. Did you do a photo shoot for that, or did oh, you yeah. just go, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, it was a big photo shoot for them. And they, I remember the uh, the uh, name of the uh, the journalist was Ray Zell. Raise hell, raise oh, Jesus! I just thought that was so great. Yeah. And they they take you out for pints and you rate records and stuff. I mean, I I loved the UK press because their whole thing was based on that. You know, they'd have new weeklies out every day, whether yep. it was Melly Maker, was Enemy, whether it was Kerrang, Metal Hammer, all these sort of uh, specified. Uh, uh, magazines for whatever genre it was in a region death metal heavy metal classic rock you know they've just got some wonderful uh like hits you know just really great great uh journalism just really drove uh the music business in england forever yeah forever. that's right i forgot about metal hammer yeah it's like it seems like that it must be like one out of eight people in scandinavia are in a death metal band that's exactly right it seems as if every single person and, and then japan it's like okay so every band that's big now is it is big in japan correct and every band <laughs> that was ever big is still big in japan correct, correct. and now japan does have their own local seat well yes of course they yeah. do yeah. Okay, so how many concerts per night does the average <laughs> Japanese citizen go to? Because there's a lot of desperate American bands trying to get over to Japan. Yeah, that's Mr. Big so have two live albums over there. That's what's so great about Japan, though. Yeah, you know they 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 don't ever they once they attach their uh, their fandom onto your wagon, they yeah. they never let it go. There's no uncool thing. If we go and play a festival in Japan. They put us up there with like Sublime. Sublime's coming. Sugar Ray's coming. It's just very sweet the way they just they uh just they treat their their musicians, the bands they love. It never leaves their let's say their CD case, if you will. Yeah, clearly, clearly. Okay, there's a lot of new music, a lot of new music worth talking about from this month in 1981. I whittled it down to 29. There's no way we'll get to all of those. And I cut David Johansson because I'm starting to think that you and I might be the only two people who care about David the Hansen. era between New York Dolls and Buster Poindexter. You, you know you know what's interesting yeah. about uh, June of 81? Uh, guess what's coming in two months in August of 81? Because you said there's a whole lot. Well, I know one that's coming in, in July. What's coming in August? August is MTV. Mm, okay. So there's a lot of releases, you say. Yeah. Uh, do these labels know what's coming? They probably know it's coming. Do they care it's coming? Because MTV obviously wasn't what it was on day one. Okay. Those of us that were there, MTV was a... Vi you were... You go, what? Your cable company has MTV and you drive to a house out in, you know, Lancaster just to watch MTV. So it was not a huge impact on moving records at first, obviously. There is one act whose fate is inextricably linked to that uh, to the rise of MTV. We'll get to them in gotcha. a second. Sorry, I just jumped no, ahead no, because no, I, no, I was no, putting no. two to two and two together. I'm like, huh, a lot of releases? Yeah. Did they know what was coming? No, these aren't necessarily a lot of MTV ready acts. Not not really at all. There's a little bit of everything. As I said, there's, there's about three dozen songs that I would be happy to discuss. I don't think we need to listen to yet more new music from Yoko Ono, but I do want to point out that she did release an album called Season of Glass, and it was a success, 
and um, this I was not success in in what what terms? Okay, certainly not commercially. <clears throat> Let's see. It was her. It really it reached number forty nine on the Billboard two hundred. You're kidding me. You're kidding me. Pitchfork said it was one of the best 200 albums of the 1980s. Of course they did. The single No, No, No is a track that directly addresses uh, John Lennon's murder. The song begins with the sound of gunshots. Well, now I feel like an asshole. (laughs) It reached number one on the Billboard Hot Dance Club chart. Like, it it did. It's not, it's not, wow, what? Can we hear it? Do you have it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here you go. And um, wait, I must have heard it before. Very divisively, the cover of the album is like the view. I'm sure out of their window in their apartment in the Dakotas, so you mm-hmm. can see New York over Central Park in the distance, and a glass of water that is exactly half full or half empty, depending on how you want to look at it, and John Lennon's actual bloodstained eyeglasses that are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now. Yeah. So, and some people thought that that was a very, very, very tacky thing to do. And she said, I am allowed to process my grief any way I please. And these glasses are the only thing that I have left of him. And everybody is just going to come down on that wherever they come down on that. What do you think of that? Where do you come down? I find it, I find it tacky. I think there's a reason why almost nobody else has ever chosen to process their grief in that sort of way i'm not saying it's like it's it's wrong but if it's if it's so far outside of how most people would choose to act when you have a private tragedy but you lead a public life well this is very different from the norm is that is there a reason why everybody does it that way or is there or no she's got a point you know i I don't know what's right for her but what's right for us having some stake in these public figures Mm -hmm. my go-to example for this is Joan Rivers and her daughter Melissa made a TV movie about their life with Joan Rivers's deceased husband, Melissa's father, mm-hmm. and he took his own life. Right. And they played themselves in a TV movie yeah, I remember. where, you know, he he kills himself and the leading up to that and the aftermath of that and it struck me as a pretty tacky and opportunistic thing to do, but Joan Rivers obviously is, you know, put together Differently. Different, differently than I am. Right, right. I, I think there, there's two 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 line two uh, trains of thought here. If there was a person to artistically express this feeling in the world, I think it would be Yoko Ono because she's had a history of these bizarre sort of art installations, mm-hmm. art expressions. Sure. So it wasn't this girl that was like a trophy wife of John Lennon and then decided, I'm going to make a solo record now. Do you know what I mean? So, Well, remember, we've talked about John Lennon's death so many times in the show recently because it just hangs over this sure. so many different ways. Especially this time. They were recording a song for her album that he was literally carrying the master under his arm when they when they went home. Right. She did not turn this on when he, right. When he died. Yeah, not, I don't I'm put my first record out. I'm gonna put my husband's, you know, bloodstained glasses. So there is a little bit of a, a trail to validate what she's doing as an art artist. Okay. Yeah. And, and in Joan Rivers case on that movie, she's a comedian. She made fun of death her whole life. I mean, I, I don't think that think... was, that was a drama. That wasn't a, comedy. no, I know it was yeah, a drama, yeah. but, but, her sort of uh you know processing it in that way is not so off brand for Joan Rivers, I, I believe. You know? 
Jonah oh, I agree with that. Jonah can't fight as much as Yoko. I almost understand more. Both to me are tacky. I agree with you. But again, it's just it's how people are wired, you know? Yeah. Well, but it's also it's the way that she's wired. But people already didn't like the way that she was wired and the way that they they saw her wiring affecting uh, effectively rewiring John Lennon's, whether or not that was the case. And so well said. You think there might have been one person at the label who said, Yoko, I know you've never listened to anybody in the world. But I know your vision here. It's not going to be seen that way by the you know, three billion people of the earth. Yeah. So it's, it's not on iTunes. I'll, here, I'll play a little bit off of Have you heard YouTube. it? YouTube. Nope. No, I haven't. I'm with everybody. <laughs> I changed my mind. <laughs> Boy, that beginning is yeah. so brutal. Yeah. That just had an emotional tug at my heart, you yeah. know? Yeah. You know, it's almost like you don't have feelings. Like, you, it's right. You're almost like what you say. You're wired differently. You, yeah. don't, you don't process. Like, we all process death differently, but it's still death. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, sure. And I guess here's here's a decent rule of thumb. And nobody knows the answer to this. Perhaps not even Yoko Ono. But but, what if there was some alternate universe where you could make that song and you could make the music video, which based on the little bit that we saw seems pretty bizarre in its own right, but you couldn't release it and nobody could ever hear it but you. Would you still do it because it had the value to you for the catharsis or... Again, is it just this, it's such a horrible thing to accuse somebody of, but I'm obviously not the only person who suspects that there's this opportunism of you've got the spotlight right now and you can use his death. You can benefit off a tragedy is, is, what, is what you're saying. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it sounds horrible to say, but, I, and I think this, yeah, was that journey to make that video, was that what she wanted to do to process? You know what I mean? That, you're right. Was that, if that, that should be enough for her then. If she's truly saying, then why release it then? Because yeah. you're saying it was a journey to make this thing. And like, why, why, why? That was for you, right? Mm-hmm. So why release it to us? Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. Now, do you think Elton John's Candle in the Wind at 97 was opportunistic? Um, no, because enough I want to say enough time had passed. I guess. It was released in 97. It says Candle in the Wind 97 in the title. She yeah. died in 97. Obviously, it was written already. It's an older uh, song. You know, it was, a, that is a classier song than that. Without a thing doubt. That, and, and he played at the funeral too. So it was like, that's a song. I think it became ben- something after he performed it. Yeah. Benefiting a charity. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of components in that that are different. Yeah. Well, and I think that, no, I, I don't at all actually, because I think he is for, despite the fact that he's rock royalty, he's not actual royalty. Right. And she was the one um, royal that average people related to and felt That's like right. they knew on a human level and the royal family wasn't going to be able to give the public the 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 forum or the whatever response you they wanted Ex- right exactly from the family. yeah exactly so you wanted a public response to this death and and yeah you weren't going to get it from prince charles no no so, or queen elizabeth or so Phillip, you, you, you kind know. of need who else were you going to get it from if not elton john yeah. and it seems organic that he played it in the in the uh, at the funeral I'll take your word for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, he did. He played it. And then I think 
the idea of releasing it came after. So oh, it was a building blocks of things. He mm-hmm. wasn't saying, oh, I've got, you know, this is, let me release this now. Yeah. He performed it there. He changed the lyrics there that no one knew he was going to do. And it became, you know, goodbye England's rose, you know? So uh, I, I think it was an, uh, the, the, the commercial part of it is an is a is a byproduct of an altruistic sensibility from yeah. Elton John. Not the exact same subject, but I, I didn't think it was a very good remake of this song. The original lyrics were such a beautiful Sentiment. tribute to you know if it's Marilyn Monroe or it's just somebody else that you know was troubled and and passed away. Don't think it was a particularly artful rewriting. No, of Candle in the Rain, but that Candle in the Rain, but that's a different story. Yeah, it, you know, you're right. It's uh, but look at it. it's the most popular single of all time. I think is it one of the for sure. There's no accounting for taste. <laughs> okay, so but elsewhere in the remembering morning John Lennon world of this war of this period of time, George Harrison has just about his biggest single so there's the the song he stole from the chiffons my sweet lord and then he's gonna have... i so disagree with that we've talked about this i want to get into it but i have to just qualify go ahead <laughs> and then he's gonna uh got my mind set on you but in the middle supposedly he makes an album and gives it to the label and wait the my lab- mind set on you wasn't out then no 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 no. i'm saying oh. that there's oh, okay, a, there's gotcha, a long gotcha, 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 fallow period yeah, yes, where he's not he's not having hit songs he not was, that everybody not that anybody he, ever thought that he was going to be a massive hit maker he was just off the radar too right yeah. just off in his there's no public uh yeah in his uh in his castle or castles <laughs> so supposedly he turns the album into the label i don't know if it's before or after john lennon dies i guess it'd have to be after and they don't want to release it because it's not commercial enough and he starts talking to ringo and ringo has this song that is presented to him it's a very ringo song but supposedly ringo has trouble with it because it's too high for him to sing Mm -hmm. and so george harrison records a song intended for ringo this would be the only song that ringo and paul and george would be on until those two songs that they made for that Read the Beatles, the Beatles uh, greatest hits, series, yeah. and that's the um, the George Harrison tribute to John Lennon all those years ago. Wow. Now is Jeff Lynn already up in his stuff by no. then? Because man, he's not up in the grill yet. No, might as well be. Not eighty one. He That's sounds like he's right there. Because, Electric Light Orchestra, all boy. over that. And then it became the Traveling Wilburys too. I mean, it was just yeah. so much. Be- and then nobody liked the Beatles songs that the, the two that they did with the leftover Lennon stuff because Jeff Lynn produced those and everyone thought they sounded like Yellow. Exactly, exactly. What's interesting about that song? It's such a great song. Yeah. Is that you can hear what made the Beatles great and everything. Listen to the bass. The bass is this running Paul McCartney. Boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. And you can hear the tone of the Hoffner in there. Um, you said that uh, uh, Ringo wrote that. I think it was written for Ringo. And written, I can see it's got that very got the, old ballroom. Right. You know, he had yeah. that baritone. But then you can hear the uh, slide playing. For sure. Which is so Harrison-esque. So it's such a beautiful tribute. Now that yeah. is the way you yeah. do a tribute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a great song. 
Yeah. It's got the spirit of the whole band without John mm-hmm. and all of them saying how much they miss you. So yeah, that exactly. is a perfect execution of a, of a tribute and a memorial. And it's hard to to not, you don't want it to be maudlin. You know, of course, Candle in the Wind, English Rose, it worked for, for that song twice yeah. to be very, very maudlin. But, you know, you also don't want to be glib. It, it sits in a nice place of being positive about something negative. You're right, because that is a dangerous precipice to dance on. You yeah. know what I mean? Because it can get real sort of, uh, like you said, it can get a little bit of a parody of itself if, if you dance a little too close to the uh, maudlin factor. So the village people are still, are still <laughs> hanging around. <laughs> Boy, they're on some last breaths there, right? I mean, they... Are they ever? Oh. I had that music magazine. I think I might have given it to you where the back cover was, you know, the 80s will be the decade of the village people or something <laughs> like that. I mean, you got to try. You got to try. I love those magazines, man. So oh. take a look at, supposedly, their label. They swore when people made fun of their image at the time and subsequently that they didn't have any choice. There were two options, and one was to look like something that to me sounds kind of like the Power Rangers, and they opted for us very severe new wave look that is super severe. that's almost an early misfits look they're going i mean if you're not <laughs> right. it's if like you're devil not, you look up the village people renaissance record it looks like glenn danzig is performing <laughs> with the village people and i mean that as a compliment look yeah. at that now they've got this weird kabuki white face they've yeah got bangs that are hairsprayed straight down patent leather everywhere uh yeah. vest mm-hmm. uh very very futuristic to say the least yeah. So the music is I, it on Casablanca still? Let's see about that. It's a fair question. I think it is. I think it is. Because uh, as a label, mm-hmm. they were just hanging on too. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of desperation going on in the Village People camp. It says it was released on RCA, and in Japan, it was released on Casablanca. So I don't know if that's yeah. that Casablanca is already going under financially. Yeah, it sounds or, like a little bit of both of that. Right. So the single is it's a it's okay. It's kind of interesting. They're they're not disco. They're not macho men anymore. They're not in the navy. It's actually this very um, Gary Newman-y kind of song. Who wrote it? Do you know? Uh, let's see. Called it... called Five O'clock in the Morning. Ooh, I know what you're doing then. Well, they made it into like a a love song kind of thing. Like he's up all night. Like I said, I know what you're doing. Then. <laughs> <laughs> and their their lead singer had also left the group. So at this Victor point. Victor's gone at this point. Victor is gone. That is right. Good on you for knowing his name. And they just the the rest of the members are perf- alternating yeah. through lead vocals. But uh, I'm, I can play you five o'clock in the morning. But I'd prefer to share with you an album track. Please do. Okay retrospectively deemed a stupefying punk rock masterpiece. <laughs> Is that a compliment? <laughs> no, it's not. Compared stylistically to Devo and Weird Al. Um, okay, let me let me. How point. is this not record on anybody's ironic list? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you know, I've, I've never even heard of this record. Okay, so here's the song that the stupefying punk rock masterpiece is. <laughs> this is called, well, it's called Food Fight. Beautiful. Food Like, 
a rejected cut from the Porky's soundtrack. Can I sound? Can I say something? Yeah. That's two years removed from Macho Man. I know. I mean, chop, that chop, is gotta move such fast. a transformation. That sounds like they got a girl from worms like me. They got a worm, but I don't want to use it. sounds like every song on Valley Girl thrown in at once on the soundtrack <laughs> to Valley Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, K-Rock was playing all of these bands, you know, Pearl Harbor and the Explosions. All these bands were being played. And I can't believe they thought that an audience that was still hanging their hat on the village people would be receptive to that. Because that is real lo-fi. Mm-hmm. You, get the, you get the punk rock counting. One, two, three, four, five. It's like... I mean, what what a misdirection that is. What- well, okay. So, how do you talk yourself into that if you're anybody who is, you know, in a position of power in that? All I can think of is disco is taking the sound of the underground and making it a little silly and selling it to the Midwest. Do they just think, well, now what's the next thing that's inaccessible and underground that we can make poppy? I think that's a fair uh, uh, take because of like food fight, you know, it's a stupid title, but I think disco was so strangled in 81, 80, anything called disco, you ran for the hills. And besides the Bee Gees, I don't know a band who was more associated with disco than the village people. So instead of just saying, let's pack it in, they said, let's pack it up. Let's, let's do something different and totally outside our lane and see if somebody buys it. I think I think there's two two lines of you know two trains of thought there. And I think mm-hmm. they're both kind of working in tandem. Yeah. But I think they you know what they're doing there is getting so far away from disco and what they were just two years. You're not talking ten years ago. It was two years ago. It's they staggering. were on the charts with Macho Man. Yeah. So they got rid of everybody in the band yep. and started over. New look, new guys. Here we go. I'm curious to know this. If you went and saw the Village People in '81, were they digging into their bag of hits? I. I just think you probably do like a new wave version, like a medley of, of a new wave version of. You know, well, how macho, macho how can you do? But then again, you got to give people what, what they, they want. What I mean, if the two hundred people that are there want to hear, you know, you know, YMCA, they're good. But interesting. I I would like to do a deep dive. I I've, I've never seen a good documentary on the Village People, and I say that with no irony. No. I'm curious to see the ups downs. I know Victor has recently been back in the band for a while. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, the village people got. He wrote a lot of the songs, mm-hmm. but got no credit. So there's a there's a huge like publishing sca- scandal. Oh, dang, in there's it. a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, the songs have t- generated tons, a decent amount of publishing. Tons. Uh, YMCA. I mean, it's untouchable. Yeah, it's the I, chicken dance at every wedding. I would like to know more about them as well because it's just one of these things that you know, and so you don't think about it and you take it for granted that we are still to such a great extent arguing and getting hung up on issues of sexuality in the culture and to have had such a to have had homosexuality thrust in your face as aggressively as ymca and in the navy did and even my i remember my parents telling me what those songs were about when i was a kid right it's not a this was not boy george going well i would be open to loving anybody who came into my life like they were really insanely gay men and it was the most mainstream cookie cutter, apple pie. I can remember being at a hard rock cafe staring down a waiter who was staring me down because I was the only person in the room who refused to do the YMCA. How <laughs> dare you? <laughs> but you know what's ironic? A lot of that stuff was going on. It was right in front of you. Freddie Mercury? I know. Was there a more glorious gay human being performer But he in was the still world? in the closet. The, the village people. No, no, no. This is yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. But, well, the village people weren't out. They weren't? No. Oh, come on. They weren't out at all. God, no. 
No, and you're oh, like, no, you're right, because Sylvester was the openly gay one. Right, right, and you're like, yeah, exactly. And, okay, and, well, even and, my and Glenn, even, Glenn, even Pat, Glenn, yeah. Glenn, and the biker mustache and all that with the ass chaps—that wasn't a dead giveaway. I mean, also Rob Halford and Judas Priest. No, was the, I know. Was doing that. Yeah, but see, my parents didn't know about that. Pat and Len Tully knew all about what was going on at the YMCA. Well, yeah. Well, look, they didn't try to hide it. They didn't try to masquerade it, but they didn't lead with it. I know that. <laughs> I, I believe that. I you know, because uh, I, I, I don't, I don't. It, ironically, you know, what, well, not ironically, it wouldn't have been accepted back then. No, it wouldn't. It have wouldn't, been. you know, an op- openly gay band on the pop charts. It just was it was unheard of back then. You know, boy, you took Boy George and others yeah. that thankfully and and right and. Uh, you know, uh, break the doors down. It's still not there. I, I, well, uh, right now, somebody could be openly gay and could have a massive hit, but that's only in the last two or three years. You could have massive hits and then come out of the closet. Yeah, like Ricky Martin. It makes me ill that he had to like suffer even. Oh my and God. Ricky Martin, well, he just had to like not be himself. And then, you know, he came to the international superstar and he goes, I'm gay. And we're yeah, all like, right. yeah, we all know. We love right. you. We don't care. It just makes me ill that that's even a thing. I know. It always has. Still, still in pro sports. Oh, I, it's there's just still, ridiculous. There's still nobody oh, open. Gigantic it's stigma. In it's sport. crazy, you still. know. As a as a Brooklyn Nets fan, uh, when Jason Collins came yeah. out, and he was he was in the perfect situation where he was this really thoughtful, put together guy. He he knew what he was getting himself into. He had a twin brother mm-hmm. that they could like lean on for support, and he was like, "I'm a free agent who may or may not get signed by a team next year. So I'm putting it out there in such a way that if I do get signed, yay! Isn't that great for gay rights? And if I don't, nobody can say it's because I was. I can't play anymore. Yeah, it's, it's just, nobody yeah. can say it was, that nobody wanted to sign the gay guy because maybe I was on my way out of the league anyway. Right, and that's I mean. The way things work nowadays, that feels like four years ago. So I'm going to say that was nine. I think it was ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it was. Yeah, and that was the, the high. Bus. That was the high water mark. Yeah, and he was a seven footer too. And teams back then needed seven footers. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's it's just crazy. I think, he did. I think the Nets actually did take him back on like a ten day. I or think something. they did. No, just I think to, he, he played. I think just he, to he, say. he played a couple more years. I think. Oh I think really? He, I think he. I think he lasted. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember him definitely playing. Okay. You know, and his whole thing was I just want to make a big dig big deal of it i don't want to talk about it every interview right i'm gay yeah that's it he's See a later. cool guy because i rooted for the nets when he was drafted by them so yeah. i watched him from the time yeah, he broke they're in great the player. did yeah. they go to stanford both of them brothers they went to stanford smart guys you sure but maybe or is that the lopez's it might have been them too really I, every tall set of twins goes to stanford <laughs> <laughs> seems that way let's see do we need to musically revisit air supplies the one that you love no, because we all know that so yeah, well. Right. I don't think it's a, a it's going to mystify us like that village people. Think. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I did not know that was produced by Clive Davis. Oh yeah, who wrote it? Let's see. See, I would one of these days we're going to have to do some dedicated shows on producers because there's certain people that I know are Clive Davis people, but then there's plenty of people that I don't know are Clive yeah. Davis people. Like David Foster, Clive yeah. Davis. Person. And when you when you have a band that had one album that had that was way bigger than the rest of them and then had one song that was by far their biggest song and then you worked out well that was you find out that's the time they worked with the super producer right right well let's let's maybe we should think of that almost more as a clive davis song absolutely or the songwriter was diane warren you know what i mean aerosmith's only number one song was written by diane warren sure it was so there's there's lots we can go in there in the future uh the one that you love was written by a member of the band Oh, what? <coughs> By Graham Russell. Yes. Graham Russell has got a full body of Japanese tattoos. Oh, from, he's Yakuza? From, from ne- yeah, from ne- he's straight up Yakuza. <laughs> from, from neck to the bottom of his feet, and he's had him since like 83. Really? Old school. The one that you love guy. The one that you love. I've never been so blown away mm-hmm. and uh, by a misconception of a human being in my life than that. 
And I'm talking about 83, full body tattoo. I was so confused by that. I still am today. Yeah. And it, it, it gives a little gravitas to those songs. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, Air Supply did need a little grit. <laughs> they got it. <laughs> they had a lot of street cred in their tattoo work, I'm telling you. Yeah. And it, it was the tap, tap, old school Japanese artwork. Yeah. So, yeah, no, he he paid the price to get this, his ink. Yeah, if you homie. if he got him by 83, he started, yeah, when the, right. he, he started paying it with the one that you love money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, the Pointer Sisters had a hit with Slow Hand off the album Black and White. Pointer Sisters- Written by? Let's see. It's The Boss. No. I'm almost positive. No. I want to love her with an easy touch. You're kidding me. I want to slow hand. Now, written by- Michael Clark and John Bettis. Darn it, because I know he wrote Fire for him. He did write fire yeah, for them. But, but I wanted to. Wanted that would have been odd if Bruce had written I want a man with a slow hand. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, dude, we were just talking about it being yeah. a free society. I mean, I know I, Prince was sort of throwing out signals to the out, other side of the gender. He just throw it out, just, yeah. He was just like a, you know, his even symbol was like one thing of one love. Yeah, exactly. That sounds like a Bruce Springsteen song, like, you know, slow. But like, if you change it, I, I want to love her with, you know, yeah. You know, you've changed it, obviously. I, sure, sure, yeah. That was a number two hit. No, <clears throat> I've mentioned many times I, li I read most of the book, all the good parts from the book by the crazy pointer sister who was, uh, you know, I just love this shit. Yeah, that yeah. was the day that we were on the love boat. Yeah. They didn't know I hadn't slept in three days because right, I was right. smoking crack or whatever. I was Bonnie Pointer, I believe. You might be right. You just don't see these anymore. And I wouldn't thought of, have thought of it, but she brought it up in the book. They This band had like six or seven albums. Okay, this is their eighth studio album. And at this point, crazy. the Pointer Sisters had had um, He's So Shy. Yeah, He's So Shy. And then I think there may have been another album or two. Right. And then they got Slow Hand and... Uh, and they're on their way to Neutron Dance. And they were on their way to... They were, they're on their way to getting bigger, too. Yeah, they were like a fringe player. Gigantic. Yeah, you know how some people are more... Um, like, they're more of a song... There's more songs than bands. Yes. You know, they have a couple of songs, but they, yes. they never... I think if the Pointer Sisters went away at this point, there's songs that you remember, but nobody remembers who the Pointer Sisters were. I completely they're agree. They're going to become, like, a worthy of their own Trapper Keeper. Oh, without a doubt. Three the years... They're a band that you go to and go, oh my God, I didn't know they had so many hit songs. And like in the 90s when we started, we had a hit, we started getting some of those private shows and corporate shows. There was a couple bands that played all the privates back then. Mm -hmm. It was the Pointer Sisters. Uh -huh. It was Casey and Sunshine Band. Uh -huh. It was Earth, Wind & Fire and you know bands of that nature. And I was like the Pointer Sisters. And then I looked at their, their whatever, 15 hits they have. They, mm -hmm. they might have a 20 hit catalog. We've talked about the 20 hit catalog. They might go 20. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That would. I mean, are, I we was, might be like the lower teens. We might be scraping and crawling, but we, we we might get there with the Pointer Sisters. Well, that's so that conversation really has to become either it's a hit or it's good or hopefully it's both because like you got to include, for example, Neutron Dance. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, but even when they were recording it, they yeah. were like, "What the fuck am I?" And they're like, "Just just trust us. It's you, just going to work. And it's part. It's for a movie. And there's you, a lot yeah. of. Yeah. Do you like money? Just yeah. go in there and say, <laughs> exactly. just say Neutron Dance a bunch of times. Exactly. You're going to love and just dance. And, and uh, um, I, you know, the 20 have to be this. They have to have some commercial success and we have to know it immediately. There can't be any sort of, you know what I mean? Any, well, I don't remember that song. That's what the 20 hits thing. That That is the, uh, that's the qualifiers. Yeah. Okay. Um, Kim Wilde. Youth in America. Debut. Kids in America. Yeah, Kids in America. Yep. She's the OG. Even though she's... She's German? 
I think she's British. Is she British? Yeah. I actually listened to this whole entire album recently. I'd heard that it was worth... Oh, okay. Here's something interesting. Did you really listen to it recently? The debut. Yeah, the eponymous debut solo album by Kim Wilde. Yes, yes. Ask me if I've watched the new hot thing on Netflix. No, I have not. Did I listen to the debut album from Kim Wilde? Yeah, it's pretty... Well, that's why we're here. It's pretty okay. That's why we're here. And by the way, she was an early video on MTV. Uh-huh. I remember seeing uh, Kids in America a lot. So she was being prepped for MTV coming their way because she was a looker. Yeah, well, she was prepped in a lot of ways, I think, because all of the songs on her album were written by her father, who was a successful 1950s rock and roll singer by the name of Marty Wilde. And the uh, the rest of the songs were written by her younger brother, Ricky Wilde, hmm. who also produced this album. And I bring him up because I never miss an opportunity to share a song that Ricky Wilde recorded and released in the mid-70s, I think, okay. as a child. Um, this is I, maybe the least, well... I was going to say the least annoying child pop song of all time, but not everybody's going to agree with that. How old was he? Let me see. Okay. Nine? Is Eight? Re- real little. Is check, it- out, check out this Bowie-esque slice of juvenile pop from Ricky Wilde called I Am an Astronaut. You might have heard this before. I up among the stars. I up among the stars. Maybe the cutest thing I've ever heard. Is he six there? I mean, the way he's like sort of vocalizing. I know. And it's it's the best of Bowie yeah. as a fan. And it's Starman, but done by a six-year-old kid. <laughs> Isn't that cute? But you can see the talent there. Because mm-hmm. if he wrote that song. I don't think he wrote that song. I don't think he was able to write his oh, name. Oh, I thought, yeah. But yeah. I don't know who wrote that song. The, the, I, Maybe I hit, dad's. I hit a wiki dead end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's went, a deep dive, dude. I went from Kim to Ricky yeah. to the actual single "I Am an Astronaut," and uh, you're, that's... At cat, you're at catfish at the bottom of the ocean there, dude. There's not, <laughs> there's not much left. There's no deeper dive to go. Uh, but I like that song. It's good. It's very. It's charming. It's cute. His voice is a little. He leans into it the. It grates thing. on you a little yeah, bit after a while. I, I really, really like it. I'm well, as a to... twee lover. Yeah, yeah, that goes right in the twee sort of category. I can't see. I can't figure out how. I bet Pops had a hand in that. Oh, there's no doubt about it. So I think he he may have been, it says here he may have been like 12. I don't, that doesn't sound like a 12 year old to me. That can't be, dude, because the way he's pronouncing words, you can tell his teeth aren't all in yet. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I'm saying? So yeah. that kid is six or five, you know? Yeah, right. And in, in, does it say, was that on a major label? I'm tell. I can't find out oh, a goddamn. Th- where out. Where are you, Wikipedia? When I really need you. Let me see. At the age of 11. Oh, no, no he was 11. God, he was, my son is 11 and he's so much more articulate. Like, I know. <laughs> I, I know. guess things have changed. I don't know. It, yeah, he they grew up so much faster now. That though. single was groomed for stardom. The children's magazine Look In featured Ricky Wilde and Donnie Osmond on the cover with the headline, Is Ricky Wilde the New Donnie? Wow. Those must have been fighting words because Donnie Osmond's voice was, I think about Puppy Love. Puppy Love, I think he sang, sang, sang that when he was 14, 13. I mean, it's so much more of a like crooner than that. Mm-hmm. This is a kid that really can't sing. No, of course not. Yeah. So to be compared on the cover of a teeny bop, you know, those are fight words for the uh, for the for the uh, young Mormon out of Utah. 
uh, yeah, and I think Donnie's got a little fight in him. I think it too. I mean, look at <laughs> it. He was on The Masked Singer. He did well. Okay, and then... He's a soldier of love. Elsewhere. Oh, gee, that's right. <laughs> you know about that song. Nobody remembers that, that song. Right, so that was the song that they... Um, couldn't come back. Couldn't get anybody to play it right. because... It's Donny Osmond. It was Donny Osmond. So I we got to give him the year. The year was like 88, yeah. 89. 89, right. And so his label or some radio station had the idea of playing this song from a mystery artist. And when it got big enough, they were finally able to reveal. That's exactly right. The label actually had the idea, which was brilliant. Yeah. And uh, they got enough radio stations behind it. Mm-hmm. And there you go. It went right up the chart. Okay. And... And you know what's crazy about that? What? He was still like 20, he was like 32 when yeah. he came. He was like, he was, you know, he's washed up then. So mm-hmm. it's just, the music business is a cruel mistress. Holly. Well, you can become, you can, you can like Icarus, you can fly too close That's to right. the sun. And when you become the face of an age, then it's a you hell. You are the face of the age. It's a hell of a thing to roll with it when, and, and again, once again, ages used to turn over in such more of an aggressive way than they do now. Now, absolutely, it's not, I don't think it's ever been an issue for Gwen Stefani that she was the face of you know girl power or whatever in the 90s yeah no because the 2000s never happened as we already talked she look she's 50 something and she's still the lead like pops you know i mean there's a few that have come aboard but no one's taken her place yeah lucky for her it's still today yeah well that'd be like olivia newton john at her age right no like in 1999 being like a legitimate pop star and she was like way off the so it's just interesting how it works today there with with the way science uh, medicine and uh other uh, products have developed, and you can stay young forever. Yep, yep, yep. Just look at uh, man, Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe is a—he's the—he's the anomaly, though. He's—he's he's, bananas. He, he's you know. Also, though, John Stamos, dude. I, I did a yeah. show with no, John right, Stamos, right, right. the Beach Boys, a, a couple weeks ago. He looks better than he's ever looked, and I'm—I'm I'm looking two feet in front of his face, looking mm-hmm. for like pore damage right, or sure, like sure, scars. Sure. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. He's the nicest dude ever. So there God are people you. that sneak by. You know, you went straight from cute to handsome. Yeah. No, he had a mullet. He was like, ah, he was all right. <laughs> and then he became the best looking guy in the world. Okay. So by far the most uh, momentous, impactful new release from this month in 1981, something that would reverberate throughout the decade and beyond. And this is the one that ties very much into the launch of MTV that, as you said, is coming up in just about two months the self-titled debut album from Duran Duran. Ah, yes. Yep, here we go. You know what the irony is of that? Is that the new romantic guys go, hey, disco. Yes, please. It's a disco song. It's totally a disco Four on the floor. Boom, ba boom, ba boom. It's a disco song. You could just stand there on the side. Nile Roger could have been on the stage going, absolutely. And he was eight years away from joining Duran Duran in the studio for Notorious. So, or uh, it's just it's just it's just weird how it's reinventing itself, but it's not at the same time. And don't forget, Manhattan Transfer was last month. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to show you where music is do going. Do I, do I, do I, did Diddy was on the charts or released last month, and then mm-hmm. now we have Duran Duran. So it just shows you this year was such a year of change. And then, of course, MTV just took uh, Duran Duran into the international superstardom stratosphere where they belonged and stayed for a long time. I think I'm really finally starting to understand what a quantum leap forward these, I'm just going to start calling them K-Rock bands. Yeah. Really were. It's a good one to do. Because, okay, so... Air Supply has the hit. The Pointer Sisters are being the Pointer Sisters. The Village People are trying. I didn't play. The Carpenters released their last album before Karen Carpenter passed away. And so that's one side of the spectrum. Disco has recently died. Punk rock. Like, if this is, if the if you can just say that this is the, the, that punk rock is the closest thing to a predecessor to this new romantic stuff, and I don't see how you would argue otherwise. Oh, it is, yeah. To have gone from what the Sex Pistols and the Clash are doing, I mean, you don't just write an album, you don't just make a band in a month. No. Like, when did Duran Duran get in a room and start playing something that sounded recognizably like Duran Duran? Because I'm pretty sure the Sex Pistols and the Clash still sound like the Sex Pistols and the Clash when these guys are sowing the seeds for something that sounds... 10 years in the future. And I'm not a huge Duran Duran fan. I'm not trying to even say good. No, but I... Just fresh and... New. Fresh and new, and it's very, very hard to be fresh and new. It's even... It's quite a bit harder to be fresh and new in a way where people go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That You, you didn't just make something different. You broke the mold, and we can work with right. that. And, and this is a prototype for a lot of shit that's going to happen for a very long time. Absolutely. Not only did you break the mold, you, you're 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 being, make, putting uh, creating something commercially viable, right? That 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 labels are going to hang their hat on for a while. I think when punk rock did, because Duran Duran was part of that, they were part of that. So was uh, uh, young Stephen Morrissey. That they they went to all the punk rock shows. Yeah, for they sure. Picked up bands. Now whether the bands ever got out of the garage, we don't know. But they started picking up instruments, and so this kind of started an explosion of bands. And punk just punk had a shelf life. It just did. Three chords and the truth can only last so long for so long. So then also out of Germany, you know, Kraftwerk was coming along. Keyboards were starting to be not. You know, the Moog was coming along. So it was a perfect sort of crash of post punk new row. We'll take a little disco. We'll take a little of that. We'll sprinkle this pie together. We'll call it Neuro until we figured out what else to call it, which took many forms. It was Squeeze. It was Elvis Costello. And it was, it was you know, um, OMD. And, oh, I got five of them on the way here. Yeah, and, and Duran Duran, too. Yeah. So they, I think it was just, it was all figuring out what it was going to be in the future. And if you looked good in a, in a blouse, MTV was going to have you rocking and it stood a way better chance. Absolutely, without a doubt, needs to be said when you're talking about Duran Duran, but I was going to make almost the exact opposite point, which is all I ever hear about the Ramones is they just told me that I didn't need to go to music school. I could pick up a guitar and I could play a couple chords. Duran Duran sound like they went to freaking music oh. school. That's what? a good... You're telling me you saw the Sex Pistols and are like, I can do this too. Give me some rouge and make me a fucking incredible bass player. I think though what they did do is, is is inspire more people to pick up instruments that might otherwise not have because it made being right. in a band so cool. Yeah. And you get a band together in five seconds. Right. You know, and then out of all that, you know, deluge, if you will, you found out the guys that could play or who couldn't play. And those mm-hmm. that, you know, those that couldn't went by the wayside. Those that could became Duran Duran and started going, you know what? Let's not just play ADE. Let me add this little, you know, Nile Rodgers funk thing. And that's when you got John Taylor, who's one of the most underrated bass players. And, you know, because Duran Duran went through this sort of teeny bop phenomenon, 
that the Beatles went through too. For some reason, Duran Duran's music is not as qualified or as celebrated or as exalted as the Beatles are. Now, I'm yeah, not they never made their white album. Not either. comparing the two. Yeah. Not comparing the two. But I'm saying both had a similar journey where Duran Duran's music was just immediately discarded. Yeah. And then they came back with Notorious and all that, which is amazing music. And so then then that second uh, wave, Duran Duran with Ordinary World. That's my favorite Duran Duran It's, it's song. amazing. Ordinary World's a terrific like, song. We Are Just a Songwriter and a Band, Duran Duran phase was, was untouchable. So yeah. my point is their catalog, their legacy got a little bit diminished by the phenomenon, that Beatlemania they went through. The Beatles went through because they're just the Beatles. But Duran Durant suffered from it a little bit and had to had to come back strong. Sure, sure, sure. As much as they benefited from the MTVization, absolutely. Because I mean, it's okay. There undoubtedly a number of bands came along that the label either they had the idea, hey man, we just kind of need to look good and we can get on TV, or the label wouldn't have taken a chance on them. Now they could because they had a look. But Duran Duran, once again. We're somewhere in the basement or in a garage or in somebody's English garden trying to make this before they know that there's an MTV. That's right. What would have become... Okay, here, the next band that we're going to play is uh, Psychedelic Furs, have an album called Talk, 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 featuring the single Pretty in Pink, which I would have guessed, I think they did re-record that? They did for the the movie. Okay, so I'm going to make sure that I play the right version of it. I would have guessed that that was from the mid-80s because it just doesn't sound they sound a little ahead of their time what would have become of all of these mtv ready bands had there not been mtv because there is inherent value to duran duran there's a reason why that music connected with people but also their success culture club yeah could you have broken culture club without being able to show everybody what boy george looked like and acted like was the music i think so I yeah. think so. Right. I, I do. Because you know what? There were a lot of bands that, that sort of tried to look like uh, the, like Marilyn. You know that Marilyn from the UK mm-hmm. was like a, a cross-dressing sort of, you know, in the very much from the same club kid, knew Boy George very well, tried to do it well. Yeah. Arguably more beautiful <laughs> than Boy George. Couldn't have a hit to save their life. Yeah. Sig Sid Spugnet, this, this, this record label creative band was all going to have giant mohawks, everybody good looking, everybody going to get the best songwriters. One of the biggest disaster uh, failures in the history of the major labels. Maybe so, to you. Maybe, oh, for them, yeah, I wasn't paying for it. I love Six Six Sputnik. The first, band, the first band that sold advertising on their album. Right, right. Because of the embrace of commercialism. Well, yeah, Such that a, was the right. whole thing. Futurism and the yeah. whole thing, which I, which I was... Uh, but. Good tunes too. I think at the, at the same token, we like the songs. It didn't shoot it no, up. Didn't not. work here. It wasn't. It's a joke. Yeah. It, it wasn't save a prayer. It, it wasn't. Uh, please, please tell me now. No. You can never deny the catalog of Culture Club yeah. of Psychedelic First. I mean, yeah. you're talking about the best of the best. They, they do. You know, MTV might have given you a little boost, but you still had to have the songs. You know what I mean? That that was for sure. <sighs> right. I guess. Yeah. Well, and then the ones that didn't, I guess, were sort of the ones that really are more MTV bands like with all due respect to like an adam ant right probably right. didn't make that same imp- impact on radio because when you weren't seeing him in it his didn't little all pirate make sense thing, yeah. then you go well god he just keeps saying goody goody two shoes right and the tribal acting it didn't all work when you only if you didn't see them with the pirate outfits yeah. and the you know the whole the the the, the, the dram- dramatic part of it you know he was an actor when he growing up i could see that adam ant, yeah so uh let me see i i don't know will Will we all be able to tell the difference between the original version of Pretty I, I can. This, okay. this sounds real lo-fi, but you, you tell me. All right. Okay. 
All right, so it's the exact same song, exact same performance, exact same arrangement, just not recorded as well. So a little kinda, grittier. It kind of sounded like somebody left the cassette up on the dashboard of the car for a little while and, and it, it melted a little, a little bit. Yeah, it warped a little. And you can hear the dissonant guitar line, yeah. the, which I don't think was in the original. And also, there's a sax in the Pretty in Pink one, uh, uh, which is, you know, which is... yeah. A lot of money in session sax playing. Yeah, in the 80s, there were. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that dried up. That was a, a bad day in a couple of sax households. <laughs> I don't miss that uh, that, that little, uh, that, that, that age at all. I've tried, I'd love to go listen to this album. Psychedelic First have always struck me as a band that I should like albums from. And then They're I go, K-Rock band. And then I go and I listen and I go, ah, the singles are really, really good. The rest is. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Uh, but I'm willing boy, to try but, again. When they hit. Oh, so when they hit, they hit, man. They I even like I, I like Richard Butler's Love Spit Love uh, project okay. after the Psychedelic Spurs. Uh, Psychedelic Spurs. Uh, Psychedelic Spurs. Forgive me. It's basketball season. Um, I, and I saw them play at the Viper Room like in '93, and they just I thought he just he he can craft a melody. This guy, mm-hmm. but you know the heavens is the hole in the sun, you know, and uh, Ghost in You. I mean, these are just magical pop songs to me. Well, and he just had such a vibe vocally oh. that I think you have a lot of songs that you know. It, 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 what is Pretty in Pink if just some other band, one of their contemporaries, records it? It's not half the song. You know, love it's, my love my way is my psychedelic first song, song, and it's just. It's, it's just the gravel. His, it's his voice. It's, it's the glass in his voice. You know, they yeah. went through that '80s, mid '80s. You know that yeah. uh, I like heartbreak. heartbreak. I love that. But love he doesn't. It. All that money wants. Yeah. I love that whole period. They play those live. They 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 still deliver. Oh really? Yeah. yeah I've heard that. That there, was sort of the. the there might label. be built a little bit of a throwaway. Okay, here comes one. You know what I mean? But uh, I'll go see. I'll go see Psychedelic I'll First. I'll see them tonight, bro. Yeah. All right, we're back. I'll we're back. travel. When, <laughs> you want a road trip? Psychedelic <laughs> First. <laughs> Don't, don't tempt me with a good time. Um, Susie and the Banshees is a group that I've always felt I should like a little bit more. They, I feel like Susie and the Banshees for me personally. Uh, I don't want to prejudice other people's listening before we play this sample, but this act, Marilyn, that you were just talking about, where somebody has a great idea of what they're trying to accomplish image-wise, and the music kind of just needs to be good enough to a little better to hold up the shtick. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So I don't know where Juju sits in their. Um, it's a big, it's a big one in their catalog. Okay, you know, Susie has this pedigree where she was part of the Bromley contingent, which is the punk rock mm-hmm. sort of groupies of the Sex Pistols. She's one of the ones on that famous British uh, talk show, Bill thing. Grundy, Ted, Bill Grundy, Bill Grundy show where the pistols said all the cuss words and it was the uproar in the press and the pistols became this larger than life you know we're all gonna die type type band she was on the set for that she was actually in a band called flowers of romance where sid vicious played drums for them believe it or not i think they might have lasted for a gig or two so her punk pedigree is exceptional yeah yeah, you know and she's also a k-rock band you know cities and dust and all that stuff i mean uh, a hong kong garden a lot of her stuff um her version of dear prudence the the cover of uh, the beatles yeah got a lot of love on k-rock she's a k-rock band always kind of baffling to be yeah the, the so I, I thought that the, the cities and dust you don't like the song cities and dust I mean I like it a little bit I like it a little bit I okay. love that let's song. see so spellbound seems like it was the single spellbound of spellbound Whoa. let's see spell you know
I mean, I'll hang out at that club. Don't get me wrong. Bro, you, you that's a great song. And the way she says, <laughs> enchanced. Yeah. We are enchanced. Spellbound. We are enchanced. It reminds me when uh, Asia said, give your free will a chance. Who? Asia and uh, owner of a loan. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, forgive me. Yes. <laughs> I, you know what, dude? We don't, yeah. we, I got to sharpen my skills a little. My my swords are getting a little dull because I don't I don't get to see uh, see as much as I need to. But yeah, no, yes is owner of a lonely heart. Maybe he of goes, say yourself, give Psh. your free will a chance. That uh, just always stuck out in my mind. It reminds me of that. That was one of those songs where you could get away with just like uh was it like a glass breaking yeah, sound Ma- effects? A Max L ad with the air going. Well, it was the song you'd you'd go in the stereo and I, uh, you'd go into a stereo store and it was like 15, 14 in the mall when yeah. they had them. You'd be like a 30-year-old guy from like Valley Girl who, yeah. who it would be go, hey, my name's Ron. You want to hear this, baby? And they'd put on Owner of a Lonely Heart because yeah. like it sounds good in your shoe. Quadraphonic. You know I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I'd buy it. Uh, you tell me who we need to hit from the following lots of these new wave, K-Rock, et cetera, kinds of acts. I, I just don't. I might be the bad guy to do this. I'm going to hear them all, but I'd like to hear the names. Yeah, you could say yes to every single one. This can be a two-parter. We can do this. We can talk about June of 1981 until it's July of 2022 for all but I, I care. But I think it's important to know because June 81 is yeah. the second quarter. It's setting up something. The labels are starting to feel something. Mm-hmm. They're seeing, because oh, when, wow. when, when I'm seeing, you know, Psychonic First, Susan the Banshees, the labels are starting to throw what they feel is going to be the new wave, yeah. pun intended, against the wall. Right. So it's just interesting to take a look back and really do a deep dive of this to see where music was going to go, what they were taking chances with. The Manhattan Transfer was a month ago. Yep. And now you got Susie and the Band. So it's just crazy. And you have, I think, the debut album from Oingo Boingo. Yep. Only a Lad. Gigantic K-Rock band. Not a huge Oingo Boingo fan. I just, I don't, I don't, I want to like it. And, and, and me coming from Southern California, like I almost get like punished. You know, I, I get docked points for the, uh, at the cool guy convention for not liking Oingo. I, 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 let me qualify that. I should yeah. say I don't like them. I just don't have the fandom that most Southern Californians do. They would sell out two nights at Irvine Meadows during Halloween, uh, like in 84, 85. Yeah. And you'd never heard of Oingo Boingo in Jersey. That's no. a twenty thousand seat amphitheater, you know. Positively not. Okay, I don't even know if I know the song. Only a lad. Let me. You, let you'll me know see. it. All right. The lady down the block, she had her radio. The Johnny wanted oh so bad, and so we took her to the chance he had. And then he shot her in the leg. But this is what she said. Only a lad. You really can't blame him. Only a lad. Society made him. No? Um, okay, I. Where is XTC at this point in time? XTC is releasing music, right? XTC is this definitely is re- wildly XTC E. Boy, I didn't even put that, that together. That's There's an XTC. definitely an Andy Partridge tonality. Oh, dude, and other singing than style. XTC, was, was people know making plans for Nigel, which kind of sounds new wavy, but it is still just drums, bass, and guitar. Right, right. XTC is drums, bass, and guitar. There's, I don't know that they ever got into the keyboard the thing. Sense is working overtime. Right. This is just a sped up xtc song you know that's a very very good analogy because they were both very smart yeah. people andy partridge is a an evil genius such Sky, a skylarking is one of the great albums of all times yeah of all times and, and such smart rock like elvis costello mm-hmm. like almost music that's so smart that you don't get it he knows you don't get it he doesn't yeah. care it's very it's, smug it's very smug but in a beautiful like a beautiful artistic way uh uh danny elfman 
who became the biggest composer in film. Yep. And just released a solo album, his first actual music. Right, music right. In quite a while. Josh Fried's drummer played on. Yep. Their, their, but the uh, Oingo Boingo was also too smart for their own good. Like, did the rock and roll bore Danny Elfman? Like, Let me go score Batman and I'll be over here doing the Truman Show while you guys continue to play Irvine Meadows. Uh, but but you know what I mean? Like, he almost got sick of rock and roll. He had yeah. to go do other things. That's where his brain was at. Yeah. And I'd never made the connection. It's almost you had to have... You almost couldn't be sort of uh, distorted with my K-Rock vision to make that connection. Yeah. And it's such a spot-on connection. XTC is the West Coast Oingo Boingo. Absolutely. The replacements are... Oh, apologies for my Discord there. Replacements are a weird band where... I, 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 do you have any relationship musically with replacements? And the, other than I just love the replacements. Yeah. You know, they were kind of on their own island yes. out there in Minneapolis with... Yep. Uh, you know, they had the Husker, Husker Doos of the world and, um, but you know, obviously Prince and all that was going on. And apparently they all hung out together. Soul Asylum was early in, in that whole thing. Um, but they refused to leave Minneapolis. They loved it. And that's where they, they, they hung out. They didn't play the game. No, they love to get drunk and yes. play bad rock and roll. Right. They lost, they lost Bob Stinson, uh, you know, relative early in their career. Famously, you never knew what you were getting from them live. That's right. You never know who's going to show up through a four drunks in a dress or the best rock and roll show you'll ever see. Right. And I love taking those odds as a fan of music. I'll sure. take them both. Right. Well, you know? I, if you're going to that, you're probably pretty hammered yourself. That's so. right. And then Paul became one of the uh, great songwriters of, of our generation, I think. Reluctantly so. Mm -hmm. He went kicking and screaming. I mean, here they are with that. They had really, Don't Tell a Soul was the record that had, uh, if there's a temporary low, born right out of my school. If it's just the same, what a, what's that? What, um, uh, I don't know. You be me for a while. You be oh, me for a while. I'll, and I'll be, be you. you. So they started really hitting on that. They yeah. opened, got to open for Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. Replacements, Tom Petty. This is like Neil Young taking Social D out. This is the big leagues are about to go. Of course, they have to be the self-saboteurs and ruin it, get drunk, play 15 minutes too long, play one song one time. And Tom Petty's like, listen, man, I'm trying to be cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So I think there was a real self-saboteur element to the replacements, but I live for that band. I love them. So there's kind of two replacements to me because I can, I go six, seven, eight deep on once they're doing you be me for a while and they're doing Alex Chilton and anywhere's better than here. And people who don't know replacements would most likely remember the stuff that Paul Westerberg did solo on the single soundtrack, dyslexic heart. Yeah. That's, but that's, that's re relatable to the replacements. replacements esque. It's but, where they were going next, but they had these like three or four albums in the beginning that this is the stuff that cool people swear by. And I, I just for life of me will never get it and I was talking to a, a legacy fan of theirs from back in the day and he's just like yeah I, I think you can just officially say you had to be there this is the first album and I think it, I'm surprised they even had an official single off of Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash this is The Replacements with I'm in Trouble Okay, that was actually better than I expected because a little bit after that, it started getting a little bit more abstract, deconstructed, kind of sounded like some drunk guys woke up in the morning and found some master tapes there and said, let's call that our album. 
I mean, this yeah. to me, that's a punk song. Yeah, yeah. I think this sounds more like that than you're talking about. I think they got a little more refined as the old. I think what happened but was there's they, this middle era. They got a little confidence where they're like, yeah, we can write songs like Alex Chilton's and like, yeah. like, hey, Paul, I know the drunken slurs kind of fun. Yeah. Why don't you just deliver the melody, man? You got to you write beautiful songs, and I think that's what kind of you know they look. They named their uh, like "Please to Meet the Replacements" is a great record, and they have a record called "Let It Be." They do. They do have a record. How great is that? Fan. I know. If you don't, if you don't, if you're not a fan of that, I mean. And then the Goo Goo Dolls came along and decided if the replacements don't want to be the replacements, then we'll be the replacements. We'll be the replacements. But by the way, if you want to replace the replacements, you better deliver the goods. And Johnny Resnick is one hell of a songwriter. I don't care what you think about them or don't. The man can craft a tune. I'm just sure you, you think whatever you want about the, the Goo Goo Dolls. I want it's okay. I got it. But yeah, but there, I just know there was a, a little, you know, I, you know, you'd go and you'd buy the discount records and it was such a dumb thing, but you were broke and in my case, cheap. So, oh, I heard Husker Du is good. Well, look, this album is in the used bin for $1.99. Let me try it. Well, there's usually a good reason why that's the, the one somebody brought back because that was that's the last album. You, and I did the same thing with Columbia House over and over again. Mm-hmm. That's the last album you should be starting with. There was just something second, third, or fourth album. Like, that was what we just listened to. That was punk. And the other stuff, I just, I don't know. If you don't like Alex Chilton, like, you just probably don't really like rock and roll. It's, I think you're right. They're their essence of rock and roll. Right. But you in know. the middle, there was some stuff that just sounded like people banging on trash cans. No, there, there was that. Yeah. <laughs> that experimental phase. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. You're yeah, we... right. If you, you go to the bargain bin and you listen to Kisses the Elder first, yeah. and you're like, I just don't get Kiss. Yeah, yeah you might. That, that's a good. That's the bargain bin uh, residual effect. No, man, I did that over and over <laughs> it's again. It's funny. <laughs> that was the album where the singer wasn't yeah, in the band right? anymore. Yeah. I just don't like this uh, this this Billy Squire record, but he's got the pink parachute pants on. Well, right. Like one of the one of the releases we're not talking about is Humble Pie have an album. And I'm That's like, crazy. Holy shit. That, Humble Pie had an album in 1981. Talk about holding on. But then you find out that there were no original members in Humble Pie. Not even a... There's no Steve Marriott hanging around. No, uh, maybe no Denny Lane anywhere. All right, screw it. We're doing it. Humble Pie. Go for the throw. I'm more. I'm cur- more curious to that. You know what I mean? Because I, 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 I don't. Know. I'd like to know what they were doing in '81. You know, here's what they were doing. Humble Pie, is this is that the Twin Towers on the cover of? Oh I boy, I can't enlarge that. Let's but see. It's a Let very very heavy metal kind of cover. It's definitely the Twin Towers. And then the Twin yeah. Towers in the background. Well, you know what's interesting? That is definitely Steve Marriott and Humble Pie. I think that sounds great. Mm-hmm. It sounds exactly like Humble Pie, which is the problem in 1981. It sounds so dated, you know, but it sounds great to me. It sounds like Raging Slab with uh, Steve Marriott singing for him. Raging Slab. That's a reference. Many will get. <laughs> You're welcome, Google. <laughs> yeah, I remember the my very first concert I went to was Motley Crue and Raging Slab, and well, and we we left before my my ride because I was a minor, wanted to leave during the encore to beat the traffic, and I found out the next day that there had been this all star jam, fifteen minutes, um, uh, Jailhouse Rock, and you know Warrant, and I forget who else from some band, oh, right, right, members of Raging Slab oh, were there, oh, man. I, I well, because they're from New York, so yeah, exactly. they were, oh, jeez. Uh, did we care about Killing Joke? 
I care so much about Killing Joke. All right, well, I then can't I can't explain too. to you how much I love Killing Joke. And by the way, to those who are Killing Joke fans out there, there's an incredible documentary on uh, Amazon Prime right now. Just Google Killing Joke. I can't remember the name of it, but it's a fantastic, comprehensive, deep dive into the world of Killing Joke. Killing Joke, June of 1981, released the album What's This For? Yep. The f- and first one. I think their debut single, Follow the Leaders. Follow the Leader, he's on a Honda. I'm going to date myself right now because yeah. I remember that coming out and uh, Honda Motorcycles used to have a commercial called Follow the Leader, He's on a Honda. Uh. And to me, that sounds like Follow the Leader, He's on a Honda. So a little bit of Mark McGrath interjection in here into what we're doing today. But that is another K-Rock staple oh, for that sure. was slammed all day long. And you give me tribal drums and a big uh, affected guitar. I'm in. I'm in. I love Killing Joke. They come to, to town. I go see them today. I, uh, I I enjoyed that more than I than I thought that I would. For some, did they get more atonal or something? No, later? no. Because nope. I was picturing more of like electronic diarrhea. No, 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 no. Go listen to uh, it's like a skinny puppy kind of thing. No, no, no. They stayed in like they got. There's a song called Love Like Blood and uh, and and. Uh, Kings and Queens and, and 80s. 80s. I'm living in the 80s. Oh, 80s. You don't know that? God, man, you're missed out. You should yeah. do a little uh, killing joke d- die because okay. no, it's very rocking. And then the and in about mid 2003, 2004, they released a record. Um, and there was a song called Seeing Red that has Dave Grohl on drums. That's probably one of the most hardcore song rocking i i put that on at night and just and freak out because dave Grohl's drums are so rad in it so no they, they're great they just did they toured with tool when tool just toured tool took them out like last 2019 so huh they get their props bro all right well then props to killing joke <laughs> <laughs> have i said how much i like killing joke yet? uh joe jackson was Roughly 15 years ahead of a bunch of other uh, legacy rock types doing a uh, a swing thing. In 1981, wow. his fourth studio album was actually technically released as the the artist is Joe Jackson's Jump and Jive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of okay. Course. So, Wait, yeah. What a month for releases. I, as oh, a K-Rock. I, We're I, like I, halfway through this. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like. Do you want to hear it? Just hey, well, baby. Yeah, I am. Jump and jive. I don't know why so many people decided that. Like, I, I get like you're at a bar and it's like a speakeasy, and somebody spent an hour and a half making you a fancy cocktail with mottled, you know, mint in it, and you go, "Oh, I kind of like this music. I can get into yeah. this." And then you buy the CD and you never listen to it. Why no. so many artists were like that thing? That thing so hard. I need to make an album of thing of that. That thing so hard. I'm going to make my career about that like it was why i don't want to say why not polka but you know just it's a thing why does we why did that need to come back wasn't there enough of it can't you not just go listen to a cab calloway record 
Well, I think you're right, but I think when you got I got a guy like Joe Jackson, he wanted to let you know he was more than just a member of the pack of New Wave. Yeah. You know, Joe Jackson is a very accomplished musician. We, we talked about Squeeze last time, yeah. Jules Holland and all these people. So there are people that are trying to rise above the pack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can do this, you know, is she really going out with, but I can also do this, you know, yeah. jump, jive, and whale stuff. So I think there was something that, yeah, they had to scratch their artistic itch every now and then. I guess his um, revivalism did pay some dividends. It must have been, if not the next album, the album after that, that he did the night and day Stepping thing. And, yeah. and I, I, I can't tell you how many songs I consider the best song from the 1980s. It's probably 50 songs, but sometimes I think Stepping Out is my favorite song from the 1980s. It's I, I, you know what's so great about it? It could You could put it out today. So it good. doesn't it doesn't age, that song. When a song is timeless, yeah. it's great to me. And well, because it, it was already 30, 40 years out of time when it came out. Right, right. I mean, it would just sound like something nothing you've ever heard but was familiar at the yeah. same time it's a beautiful song it's it's a yeah it's great and to have this jazzy thing that's identifiably old new york but it's actually a very up-tempo song it's absolutely very 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 strange but very and, and effective. The, with the bass moves like you know it's just it's it's a groovy it's a it puts you i've said this before when a song puts you in their mood yeah and not uh, not uh you know you putting a song in your mood right that's when a job is done as a songwriter yeah, yeah. It just you feel like you're stepping out. Yeah. In a, in, in a yellow taxi, turn to me and, and smile. We'll be there in just a while. What a great lyrics, though. So good. You dress in pink and blue, just like a child. Oh, so good. So good. Magic. Iggy Pop, Bang Bang Party. This is. Uh, I haven't actually listened to this. I want to listen to it with fresh ears with you. One of the reviewers or commenters on it said Iggy Pop is the greatest. Even when he tries to sell out, he can't. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a hard song to sell out on. Yeah, know. yeah. Bang, I'm sorry. Bang. The album, the album is party. The song is bang bang. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Here we go. Rockets. Shoot off the space and buildings rise to the sky. Bang bang. I got mine. Bang bang. Why don't I know that? You don't know that? That's great. Gigantic KRQ uh, staple again. I, that's it, my it, favorite it, one so far, I think. that That's a great song. I, it must have been, I wonder who wrote that because whoever's selling he sold out must have been, he probably you know, wrote with Trevor Horn or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, because to me that's still, that was anything but selling out to me, especially in 81. You know what I mean? When Arista heard the album, they brought in former Monkees producer Tommy Boyce to uh, remix Bang Bang. That's crazy. And according to his biography, Iggy said he wrote Bang Bang because Arista wanted a single and he promised them a commercial album. He originally wanted Phil Spector to produce the song. Oh, that would have been interesting. Yep. Yep, yep. He collaborated on that album with Ivan Kral, Kral, best known as the guitar player and bass player for Patti Smith in the 1970s. So kind of a weird mix of very credible people and people. And the monkeys. Yeah, and the (laughs) the monkeys. Yeah. um, I love that song. That that song brings you right back to surfing in Newport Beach in 1981. That's really cool. Yeah. One reviewer said a bizarre train wreck of an album. All music wrote part of his unique sort of integrity is the man doesn't seem to know how to sell out even when he tries. And one of the strangest albums of his career is Living Proof. Yeah. That's great. I dig it. I love that. 
Uh, I think we are going to have to wrap up with one more song from this musical um, neck of the woods genre. How, how many do you have left on that? Can okay, you, let me see. Can, what, I, we're not going to do a part two, are we? I, or do you want to? Because I, I want to know. I just want to know the rest of the band, just so I'm getting. Okay. I okay. Who, here's who we're not getting to, and yeah. I would like to. No problem. I won't. I won't even say a word. I just want to know them. Curtis Blow, Al Jarreau, The Commodores, Kenny Rogers, Johnny Cash. John Denver, Peter Tosh, oh. The Beat, a.k.a. The English Beat, Black Flag, Minor Threat, oh. Blue Oyster Cult, The Joe Perry Project, and um, legendary satanic metal group Demon. This is this is everybody. Oh, and we also didn't do David Johansson. We did play The Humble Pie, the debut from Thompson Twins, and the uh, apparently fairly flaccid farewell studio album from a band I like called Magazine. Oh yeah, me. I like the magazine too. Yep. You know, it's really weird. We were really, we were really K rock band heavy yeah, yeah, yeah. there, so we missed the John Denvers, the yeah. Commodores. I've got them all grouped kind of by. Right, no, right, right, yeah. right. So that that's why it seemed like it was kind of just one tone on this. But um, no, fascinating. I, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, taking a little break with evident creative strain within the band from Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, do the Genius of Love thing. that song does not bring you joy then you somewhere along the way you've gone horribly astray i can't agree with you more because the in 81 the production of that fresh that vibrant has come has come out when you're hearing like you know killing joke and stuff like that that's what they're working with yeah in fact grandmaster flash heard that and went this is the most hip hop thing I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Two, the two, white, the two white guys from Talking Head. One's a girl came up with this incredible, incredible piece of music. They wrote a song called It's Nasty over that whole beat. And then it became a template for every hip hop song of the 80s and still today. Yeah. I mean, that BPM is what makes the dance floor shake. I still hear that song on R&B stations out here that, believe me, are not playing any other Talking Heads absolutely songs and mariah carey obviously was able to just pop in on top of that and do whatever the hell she wanted and get her own hit out of it because you can't you can do anything with genius of love and you have a a hit song genius of love for the 80s is kind of like what pony is in the 90s you know the uh, genuine my pony when the track's a hit just get out of the way of it man you know i that thing second i heard that i go where do i buy this thank you yep it's crazy that what's her name tina tina uh, waymouth, waymouth, waymouth you yeah. say it right didn't actually play she was the bass player in the talking heads bass player in tom tom club i don't know if she was like had the flu or something so somebody she didn't in. play bass she that day she didn't play bass on wow that's incredible her signature bass song but she wrote it we don't I, know tom tom club is her and let's see about that let's and, and, her, guy's and her husband right yeah i can't remember his name right now yeah, I'm, I don't go talking heads. I, I don't know as much as I should. Chris France, Franz? Chris, Chris Franz. Yeah. So husband and wife team from uh, 
Wow, that went to number one on the Billboard Disco Top 80 chart. How long did the Disco Top 80 chart exist Boy, for? They well, probably started it just in time to shut it down. That song gave it another year. You know, that probably was on there for about two years. So there are four credited songwriters on Genius of Love. Chris and Tina are two of them, a gentleman by the name of Stephen Stanley that I am not familiar with. And boy, here's an, <clears throat> a name I have not heard in a long time that will be um, uh, a new name to most people, I assume. Is it Adrian Bello? Bello? Oh, Adrian Ballou. Ballou, yeah, okay. Adrian Ballou from uh, King Crimson. Yeah. Yeah. He was one of these guitar names that got thrown out in guitar magazines all the time. That's all he is to me is a name from guitar magazines. He he was a co- songwriter on that? He he gets first songwriting wow. credit Wow. Well, now you know why it sounds so good. It is so good. You know, mm-hmm. King, King Crimson, the sounds and the day, I mean, pff, unbelievable. Oh, she, wow. had an, she had an arm cramp. Maybe she she would have got over that or they could have waited a little bit or got some extre- Gatorade. <laughs> extremely, I know, get some electrolytes. They had an extremely limited studio time, just three days when it was time to do that track. My whole right arm seized up in a terrible cramp. I couldn't play. Uh, I'd never played in the studio around the clock like we were doing. I didn't even know that could happen. I ended up waking up the assistant engineer who was asleep under the console. I showed him the part and he played it. So she did write it. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that completely can. It's just amazing that it sounds that fresh in 81 it and it still sounds that good today. Man, it's amazing. Yep, 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 yep. So I think that's I think that's where we got to go. I would love to spend some time with... I mean, Wait, is, is the next month as heavy? Well, I know the Go-Go's are coming. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Well, so it's going to be a heavy yeah. one. It's going to be a heavy one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be big, Mark. Beauty and the Beat by the Go-Go's. Oh, man. Yeah. We, we, we had an argument about that last time, remember? Oh, oh yeah, over the, uh, the well, the Go-Go's do not go 20 deep. Right, right. Well, again, there's, yeah. there's going to be the K-Rock factor yeah, that will always be involved. They, didn't, in they did not have 20 songs on K-Rock. Not 20. No, not no, 20. no, right, right. Okay, well, yeah, we'll just, for now, anyway, that's, uh, we have so many other things to talk about, but I don't know, we'll, we will do this again soon, and we will talk about something hopefully um, interesting when we, when we do so. Until then, thank you, and fare thee well, my friend. You're now a traveling musician again. Yes, I am out there playing rock and rolling, so hit me up if you want, at Mark underscore McGrath on Twitter, or uh, SugarA.com, and uh, that's where we'll be, that's where I'll be. So thank you, Mike Tully, as always, great talking to you.